Hello, hello, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula or cream liqueur of For Your Mind, to Cricket Center Thorntree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorama, joined, as ever, by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. So, uh, we were trying to decide what to talk about today, and one of the things that um, we uh, I mentioned was that maybe we should talk about sort of... Um, Biden's trip to the Middle East and stuff that's going on in the Middle East right now. And it led to the question of, you know, this Middle East term, it's kind of a little bit useful because, you know, some people know what you, you know, everyone kind of agrees, like, for example, Syria. Syria, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, these things are all in the Middle East. Everyone else, everyone agrees. Egypt, Egypt's also in the Middle East, which is why you can't just call it Southwest Asia. Right, right. But then, you know... Is Iran in the Middle East? Maybe. Is uh, Turkmenistan in the Middle East? Is Pakistan in the Middle East? Is Turkey in the Middle East? Is Libya in the Middle East? Is Morocco yes. in the Middle East? <laughs> and the answer is sometimes. <laughs> 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 but once you're starting to get a country that's as far west as Spain and putting it in the Middle East, the whole idea of Middle East doesn't really sound so useful as a, as a sort of term. No, I did, but uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, and people literally made fun of that for like hundreds of years. What is the Voltaire quote? It was neither Holy Roman nor an empire. Yes. <laughs> so the Middle East, it's, in the, it's not in the middle of the East. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, no, it's, I. It's buggered from the beginning. But it's so, you so know, what's, like Spain is totally east of Brazil and. Uh, so the Spain can be in the middle of the East. Uh, I think that I think that the Middle East is just. I think that um, there is a that clearly uh, when when the twentieth century vocabulary was was baked in, the world was obsessed with race. There were overt race nationalists uh, defining the politics of uh, Germany and Italy and France and the UK and. Uh, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, Russia before the Soviet Union and the Ottoman Empire had some pretty racy, spicy stuff. And, and, and uh, China, Han China's always been about as racy as you get. Japan, you know. So I think that these, I think that the continent blocks, um, you know, Asia means people who look a certain way. Uh, Africa means people who certain, look a certain way. Europe means white. South America means a, a race uh, North America is sort of interesting because it's it's, it's uh, a bit of a mix and Middle right. East is like mushed together Arab and uh, yeah it's Persian like places that and... speak Arabic plus plus Turks and, and Persians no, it's not about language it's about race I think the Middle East I'm not saying that that's a good idea by the way uh, no no I know I know but people's conception Often the West just means white, not always, but right. uh, I think the conception of the Middle East, if someone sees, like people are so scarred to say certain things, like people often use Muslim as if it's a racial term. Um, right. uh, people who, who, if someone uses Muslim as a racial term, uh, whoever they call Muslim is in the Middle East because those guys don't know the difference between a Kurd and a Persian and, right, and an Arab right, right. and a, uh, yeah. I, so I think that's my theory on descriptively how the word Middle East works. But, so before, but if we, we've jumped right into it. 
Do we do we I not want to do just a little South Africa before we go to the Middle East? We, we we can come. We can we can go from. I just want to finish this, and then we can go to South Africa. Then we can come back. There's nothing stopping okay. us from coming back. Oh. Uh, you know, this is why. This is why I like to use these kind of old-fashioned terms, like you know, um, uh, 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 Iran. Uh, Iran is actually quite an old old sort of term that means sort of like all the place of the Aryans. Um, mm. uh, Ar Aryanam, I think, is the, the original version of the word. Um, but Aryan, in this case, means sort of Indo-European peoples, which basically means um, Persians. In, yeah. It's, it's sort of, in, yeah, in this, in this, this case. Uh, I, I quite like using the term Levant. The problem with Levant yeah. is it's not... It's not. Uh, it includes, you know, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Syria, but then not really that much else. Mesopotamia is basically just Very Iraq, narrow. so that's not super yeah. useful. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if there really is a better term for that part of the world than Middle East that's like commonly in use, unless we want to invent one. No, it's fine. Europe. Europe's so weird. Like, where does Europe end? Where does Europe begin? Sometimes Europe includes Russia. Sometimes Europe uh, excludes uh the 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 redoubt in Konigsberg, you know sometimes it's very political sometimes it's, it's kind of geographical to do with a mountain range in the urals uh you the yeah, I mean, continent is a hot mess it all of these names come from like like europe was the name of a cow europe was the name of a lady <laughs> who was who was who hitchhiked on zeus the cow and then got raped like it's not a none yeah, of this yeah. is this is yeah, the uh, Greeks, and it's it's. How about Eastern Mediterranean? It's definitely messy. Yes, I quite like that because I think that um, for the for for like kind of I don't know the last five thousand years for a very long time. Yeah, uh, that's been a, a defining feature of uh, of that part of the world and its yeah. challenges and its good benefits. No, so yeah, I think I think maybe from now you got to try using that as a term. You make it shorter though, like the East Med. Yeah, East Med. East Med is good. Um, and that also includes Cyprus, which is sort of a very odd child because, you know, Cyprus is this weird sort of country that's like, you, you want to talk about race problems. Oh, boy, that place has got some. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's also it's also weird in that it's got pieces of Britain on it. Uh, the British still control significant, well, not huge, but like, like noteworthy pieces of the island. They've got like a Gibraltar they're, rock somewhere there. Sort of, yeah. They've got two. Um, they're basically naval bases, which are still part of British. You know, they're not leased from Cyprus. They're British territory in the middle of Cyprus, which is very sort of strange and awkward. Um, <laughs> so, I was that from? Is that from the the last Crimean War days from the eighteen? No, no, that's from so so after the First World after War, the, Britain, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, so, so Britain had this thing where it was looking after Cyprus because they were allied to the Ottomans for a while and the Ottomans were falling apart. And so basically they agreed to look after Cyprus for the Ottomans um, so that it didn't just slip back into Greek control. And then uh, when the First World War broke out, suddenly the British and Ottomans were on opposite sides. And so the British, saw, uh, the British just said, well, I guess Cyprus is ours now, and they just annexed it. And then when they gave it independence during the decolonization period... Uh, they said, yeah, but we've got these really important naval bases here we don't want to give up. So, you know, you can have the whole island except these two pieces. Uh, and then that has Dude, just I swear there was, 
like one of the first like artsy movies I can remember watching in the cinema was like sort of set on Cyprus with these British soldiers in this period of history. There's like love affairs and playing music on tightly strung, not yet. Is there, a, is, there, is there a piece of literature about Cyprus that doesn't include something like that? Yeah. And it's like, you know, <laughs> moonlit beach walks and delicious festivals and everyone's quite pure, quite poor, but also has great skin and like sun-kissed uh, uh, joy and then they all die in like a, an explosion did, did you know that um malta almost joined the uk as a constituent part of like the uk so it would have been the uk would have been uh uh, uh great britain northern ireland and malta that was the name was too long it couldn't it couldn't so sometimes <laughs> like the opposite of nominal determinism in a good way uh <laughs> so so as far as i understand the story went something like this um malta in the decolonization period basically has the choice of of either going sort of independent um staying as this kind of half colony or joining the uk and they voted to join the uk but then the uk parliament said you're only doing that because you want us to bail you out because they had major financial problems at the time so the uk literally turned them down <laughs> So they had Aww. no choice but to seek independence. <laughs> shim, 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 shim. Oh, it was a different time, hey? <laughs> yes. Now, I have a feeling like today they would the, probably the just memes, totally The memes were not the same. I mean, then instead of... It, it would really hurt Spain because then instead of all the Brits going to Ibiza for holidays, they'd probably all go to Malta. Oh, The Maltese Falcon is a good movie. It's one of the first. Never seen black it. Oh, black and white, like, dude, as like a, as an eight-year-old, I remember watching that on, went to a dinner party in Houghton at this sort of fabulous mansion. And the, <laughs> the, 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 there was no, like, taking care of the child, children and this kind of thing. Um, but there was the, uh, the eldest uh, child of the host was in his, like, late 20s or early 30s. And it turns out he was pretty deep into his heroin addiction at the time, but no one... <laughs> but it, you probably didn't it, notice. It, it, yeah, it was subtle, and there was, like, a lot of, like, salmon and champagne going around. So the grown-ups weren't too worried. Anyway, to sort of keep me distracted, and uh, if there were one or two other little proper youngsters, he flipped on a DVD, and we watched The Maltese Falcon, and it blew my mind. It was so good. It is so good. I, why are we doing recommendations at the beginning? It's like, uh, dude, it's well, like... Well, save it for the end. It's, <laughs> it's the like... End. It's like the original sort of detective um, uh, noir, but before noir, like black and white, just like uh, tough characters, great punchy dialogue, slow-paced storytelling. Mm, that um, sounds pretty Interesting good. cinematography, kind of. It's my only real Malta connection. I don't know much about it besides that. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting idea. And it has, and by the way, that movie has nothing to do with Malta. <laughs> <laughs> Just there's this duel called the Maltese Falcon. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it's quite an interesting place. I know quite a bit about its history, but uh, that's not really what we plan to talk about today. So, no, you but is to it part of? No, no, no. But is Malta part of the Middle East? So this is an interesting question. And the answer is, if you go on the sort of more expat, if you mean Middle East to be basically sort of Arab and Iranian civilization, uh, then the answer is sort of, because it had quite a lot of Arabic influence, even though it's been 
uh, run by European Christian powers for like, what is it? Since, since the Reconquista. Since probably the 1200s. I'm not actually sure when the when the Nepalese captured it. Anyway, somewhere around there. Um, the Sicilians captured it somewhere around there from the Arabs who had captured it from the Greeks, the Greek Romans who had captured it from the Carthaginians who were Lebanese living in Tunisia. Anyway, it's, a, <laughs> Dude, that's it's the thing about being a tiny little place. Like, you know, you're going to, yeah. at some point, uh, you, you're like a famously at a, at a very hippie party. You just get passed around. Right, exactly. Hippie. Exactly. Um, and, and its people speak a sort of unique language, which I believe is a kind of mixture of Arabic and Italian, uh, something like that. Anyway, mm. I, I could be slightly wrong on that one, but they, they definitely have a lot of both European and Arabic influence because they're right sort of at the mixture point of those two cultural groups. Okay, just uh, since you're talking about slightly wrong, can I say something that's been, I literally had a nightmare last week after we did our last episode because <laughs> you talked about yes. Shinzo Abe and I misdescribed an aspect of Abenomics. Right. Which was? This is not a gentle segue. We are ripping right across the planet from Malta to Japan. No, I said that I've been eating your soul. It has been. Dude, I, I woke up at like five o'clock the next morning and almost called Nick to say, please cancel the episode. And then I thought I'm being a prima donna because uh, people make mistakes. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, I said that like a key component of Abenomics was um, limiting the size of government. In fact, he increased aggregate government spending. Uh, in order to try he, and achieve, he, a he did deregulate, though, as far as I understand. So yes, so this is what I had gotten wrong. I had confused red tape with fiscal policy, and and partly it's, I think, anyway, sort of I partly underestimated the way in which he had sort of frustrated both people on the left and on the right. In other words, we were, you know, in the immediate response to his death, there was you know a couple of like just irritating left-wing this guy was so right-wing and divisive and whatever um but but just in terms of basic uh you know the question of how much how big all the government should be he made the government bigger because he thought aggregate consumer demand has to increase in order to um get us out of the semi-deflationary sort of post-deflationary um low consumer spending uh rut that we're in anyway so i'm very sorry about that he was he was confusing he was more confusing than i was making him out to be uh, but which in to a be way honest, even uh, more to his credit yeah japanese politics really is like that though because it never quite goes along the contours you'd expect it's always a bit sort of odd because japan is so in many ways i think it's possibly one of the most unique nations on earth in terms of how it doesn't always seem to play by the same rules as everyone else so I mean, our, obviously, our, segue, our segue from yeah. Malta to Japan is not that bad because Japan is like very, <laughs> it's like big Malta <laughs> uh, sort of the difference the difference is that that Malta had everyone landing on it and pillaging it even including Napoleon I think at one point um, <laughs> for a very long time whereas Japan has done its absolute best to not have anyone land on it and pillage it uh, Except I mean, the closest. Yeah. Well, the Mongols tried it, and that didn't work. The Americans knocked on their front door with guns in the 1860s, and that opened them up to trade. But that wasn't really an invasion. And then in World War II, they were preparing for an invasion, and then, thank goodness, the emperor surrendered before that took place after the atomic bombs, because 
the the Japanese military's plan. You should uh, maybe I should recommend a, a lecture on that, which I've seen. It was dude, I think insanity. didn't we we did a that was isn't that what prompted us to do our kind of factual um, two crickets podcast on like what if the 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 World War Two in Japan had ended differently. Um, yeah. Part and I remember part of the thought was that uh, it would be terrible in Japan, and part of the thought was that the Chinese Civil War uh, that predated and succeeded World War Two would have ended differently. Um, maybe for maybe oh, we for focused. Better, I think we focused more on China much, in that episode. We, we did, yeah. So we should we yeah. should bone up and do and then do like a, a, a Japanese. Yeah, the, the Japanese military was. If you if you wanted to see an amazing example of a institution which has just lost touch with reality, and yet still has total control of a society, that's the case study right there. Mm. Um, a warning for us all. It's one of the reasons why the Japanese don't like their military that much these days, because you know you only get burned once by an institution like that before it takes a long time to rebuild the trust. If you know what I mean. Fooled me um, once. Shame yeah. on. <laughs> Well, That's actually, the, shame on all of us both times, but like, wow, it's we're not going to uh, don't want to repeat that. Right. This yeah. is one of the ways they kind of moved on from the war was by basically saying it was all the military's fault and let's never, ever do that again. And so we're just not going to have an army for like 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Also like America, that little bit, you know, the sort of how a little bit of American revisionist, revisionist history in the, in the late 40s. It's like, oh no, the Germans weren't really that into the whole. It was the, it was the, it was the SS. Yes, yes, the and, German uh, army wasn't really. They were, they were just following orders. It was all yes. the the SS and a small group of Nazi officers. And by uh, the way, <coughs> we're going to use a whole bunch of German army guys to like yes. pivot against the USSR. <laughs> yeah. Also, West Germany is our Not foremost related. bulwark against the Soviets. <laughs> Not at all related. If you're trying to connect those dots. You're thinking too hard. Just we won. Don't think about it. We're telling you who the good yeah. guys are, who the bad guys are. It's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, look. To a certain degree, I can I can get behind a little bit of that fudging over time, but there are still consequences from yeah. doing that, even when it's for a noble cause. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Um. So South Africa, you wanted let's let's uh, let's zip back home. What did you What did you want to say about our our fair nation? Uh, I don't know, dude. I feel like kind of breezing through. Just it's a Friday afternoon, like a couple of interesting we had things a, this week. Yeah, we had a we had a pretty. It wasn't a hugely exciting week. I saw the public protector uh, is is now finally facing parliament, but that seems to be grinding on, in the most uninteresting, boring way imaginable. But yeah. Dalian Porfu was saying lots of. No, dude, I automatically what? put the TV on mute when I see that. I who Dalian Porfu? Do yeah. you know what he's going to say? Yeah, he's just going to say ridiculous stuff. He's going to um, say things you couldn't imagine an actual like professional adult not actor not in a circus serious human beings <laughs> what what did you make of this uh i can't remember what the institution is called the legal something that ruled that Dalim Porfu had not been rude when he said shut up in Klosser because in Klosser shut up is not a rude word dude i think that well i was gonna say like <laughs> i i there, there is dude if we haven't done it we need to do it. And if we haven't done it in a while, we should do it again. Like there is a black pride, white shame, two crickets special episode that, that I, I think that the, that the, the ability to hide um, bad behavior behind a kind of racial insecurity thing um, is becoming sort of sillier in a way. 
I mean, like honestly, with, that the was... Biggie Clearly, the Biggie Clearly thing was such a meme. It was so obvious. Shut up, shut up. This Dalian Porvi thing of shut up, shut up, but no, it's like in a different language or in a different culture. We saw the same yeah. thing, by the way, with... Um, uh, oh, man, there was this court case uh, a little while ago where where there was like some some heavy heavy rudeness and then they're like no this is um you don't understand like the cultural inflection um uh it, it totally makes it okay it's just it's just uh this is just this not is something another you kind would of, take seriously yeah. unless you unless you had white guilt or black pride like if you were just if you're just playing balls and strikes straight down the middle like with people um i don't think that it's it's uh, it's also it's also got a sort of race race essentialist kind of line to it right because it's sort of like you know the ways of us of us people is so mysterious that you people can't understand our, our mysterious complex culture you just don't understand all the subtleties and you never can get it so yes. just leave us alone and stop coming here with your white arrogance kind of thing which yeah you know, if you, if that was done the other way, you'd immediately see the very obvious problem with that about how well, it, twisted it of a sentiment that is. Yeah, it's not a it's not a it's not a smart play. I mean, here's here's one, another one. Um, uh, Malema in court saying, you know, in our culture we have a phrase, and then he said it, and then he's like, and the translation is, um, the sins of the fathers carry over to the sins of the sons. It's like, dude, let me just like riddle, riddle me this. Have you heard of Judean Christian society? Like, there is a have, thing called Judean Christian culture. I'm not uh, at the moment trying to punt it. Have anything. you called a, Have you heard of original sin? You know, an ancient concept in Christian it's been going, theology. It's been going since before Christianity. It's been going since the Jews, since the Torah. You know, and by the way, if you go back all that far. Uh, you're going to find in ancient Greek religion, in ancient Norse religion. In fact, since as, since as far back as we can go, when human beings started writing things down, it turns out they started writing down about how these guys killed those guys because their parents' parents' parents <laughs> killed their other parents' parents. That turned out to be a very important thing to write down so that the next generation would also remember whose parents killed whose parents so that you could kill their parents. That is the most translatable basic human universal idea that there is <laughs> i remember back when i was an undergrad in vits and there was so a, a, a woke woke white professor who was going on about you know she she basically believed some version of this race essentialism but not really because i think she had, she was she wasn't a lecturer she was like a, a tutor you know a kind of post-grad student who was looking after us in tutorials hmm. and so she, she believed she, believe she was trying it out like a bikini on, so she she, she uh, had it she it, it, it was in her mind because it's the only thing. It's like, it's like when you're if you've only eaten bread your whole life, your conception of food would be only bread, right? Yeah, pretty good. That was basically her view of it. And I remember in the tutorials because I was doing medieval history at the same time, I kept bringing up how like early African state formation had a lot of similarities to like state formation in in England at this specific time, and how there's all these commonalities. And she thought, she said to herself, you know. Yeah, I guess you know people are sort of the same everywhere, and it it was as though she had never had the thought before. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> like, sort of come to this conclusion. It's like you know, maybe we are all human beings. <laughs> like, like you're like you're with a 25 year old, and it's the first time they've seen the sunset. It's like wow, yes, that's where yes. that's where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
it is, I mean, uh, Lord, it is such a what a weird world. Like, I don't know. And it is, dude, the, the other extreme, like, I heard someone say today, um, uh, I, I saw Sora Ramaphosa speaking in front of the Communist Party. Um, and I had to go oh, for work course. for a thing, so I couldn't really watch it. But I'm very curious to see what he says in front of them because I'm not sure if this is the first time that he's spoken in front of them to them at one of their like at one of their major dues since he became president or if he does this every year you know it's like we live anyway so he, there was this um uh, uh a person a generation or two above us um who had reported during the transition and you know in that way like fought against apartheid uh good 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 values in that sense and at a time when it wasn't always so easy um and when it made a difference and all very good um but like i could feel such a hangover because she said, I, I i laughed and she, my friend said what are you laughing at and i said well dude the the slogan says for the sacp for the communist party is a hundred years of unbroken struggle <laughs> <laughs> which i think is an, like that is i don't know why that's funny i mean i think there's a few reasons it's funny <laughs> <laughs> starting with like while i was reading it Ramaphosa's head was in the way, so I thought it said 100 years of unbroken promises because I couldn't see the last word. <laughs> and that's the natural way to finish that sentence. And that yes. made me laugh because I was like, that's a hilarious thing that someone actually put on a poster. And then he moved his head and I was like, no, they couldn't. Someone someone spitballed 100 years of unbroken promises and thought like, the crowd guys, is... <laughs> guys, let, yeah, let's not try this one. This is pushing it too far. <laughs> and there's like 100 years of unbroken struggle. What a weird thing to brag about. Like, what what is that? Like, what are you saying? <laughs> anyway, um, my friend said, oh, that's funny. Like, why wh why is that happening? And I said, well, you know, there's the tripartite alliance. Like, oh, yeah, that's been going for a while. But, like, South Africa's got no communism at all. <laughs> I know, and I laughed. I was like, dude, what about expropriation without compensation? Anyway, so, but I think that, I think that, uh, you know, uh, one thing is the thing you're describing with a grad student who hasn't had much experience. Another thing is people who had a lot of experience and they experienced this sort of um, nationalist party story of every bad thing is communist or everything that's not them is communist. And so there's sort of communists right. everywhere. Um, and, and once you build up a thick skin to be like, uh, no, that's all exaggerating. I think you can get to the point where you turn on the TV and there's the president of South Africa addressing the communist party saying, look, our relationship is more important than ever. We really need to double down. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, no, that's not communism at all. Oh, this is the guy who tried to introduce EWC, still trying to do it through the expropriation bill and the land courts bill. Um, you know, driving through the most outrageous affirmative action, you know, new, new policy with the employment equity amendment bill. Um, that that anyone has attempted in the 21st century. I mean, we're really cutting edges. After having like the world's worst unemployment rate with the world's highest national minimum wage, relative like that's a, like the the most regulated labor market, keeping people out of work and on dependency with the world's lowest grants that anyone is expected to actually live on. It's it's a stunning <laughs> array of like communist like like communist esque failures. Um, but you're like, no, 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 you mustn't. But then the other thing that I think is hilarious about a hundred years of unbroken struggle, dude, a hundred years ago. I mean, I think it was in 1922 that the first, I think this is what they're commemorating was the first communist party rally where the slogan was 
workers of the world unite for a white South Africa. Yes. <laughs> 100 years of unbroken struggle. Dude, at some level, you've got to believe them. Like, something has not broken. There's a kind of... There's... Yeah, there's definitely some continuity there, but... Uh, <laughs> hmm. Yeah. There's like a continuity yeah. of bad, stupid... Like, there's the a, more, there's... Yeah, the more you think about it, the more kind of not so lucky it gets. <laughs> it's really pretty grim. It's like, when have they... Uh... Anyway, but I think that... I think that uh... It's fabulous that our president is. Um, he pitched to the communists. He was like, "Guys, I got the solution to ESCOM. Mm -hmm. New ESCOM. Hell yeah! I so a, a second SOE. <laughs> this one is just called Supush. Yeah, right? ESCOM two. I was I was gonna say electric boogaloo, but there's not no, gonna no, be a no, lot no. of electric. So mo more no, no, just no, sort no. of boogaloo. Le electric to boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> the government has failed, dude. But I thought this is the most. What a beautiful. What a beautiful. Dude, South Africa is becoming its own cartoon. Like we, I have. How many times have we joked about how we don't fix things? We just like you know the CBD in Johannesburg was beautiful city. Uh, was getting uh, there were there were difficult things about it during the transition from apartheid to all race proper democracy, and then uh, instead of like solving the problems, we just went and built Santon, and then it's like after Santon you build Midrand, and then after that you know we just keep rebuilding new CBDs in yeah. the main city in South Africa, and it's and it's not just Joburg too, like a lot of the smaller towns around the country, you can see the same thing happen, uh, dude. The 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 uh, my favorite one was in Schweizerenica where the police where the where the home affairs in Schweizerenica burnt down. Um, <laughs> they built a new home affairs, uh, but it was like empty during weekdays because someone said the, they only have the keys for the old home affairs. They can't find it. There's like a stadium that's run down and then a new stadium next to that, but that one doesn't like no one cut the grass and they had, no one's built a road into it yet. So it's like you just got two useless like not big stadiums, just like little stands and like soccer posts. You know, it's like and and at a at an institutional level, instead of fixing the scorpions, we just disbanded them and built the hawks, and then fixing the hawks, you make it the ID, but then the ID is kind of the same thing. We 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 really are done. Yeah, I think this. If a government program really... fails in other countries, you make it bigger. If a government program fails here, you just in you just keep it going and start a new one. But this is this is very much a a, a symptom, I think, of ANC governance in particular. I, I mean, I remember this in uh, the inertia just from when I was in you know my short stint in local government. Everything is just like the same story over and over again. I remember in. Uh, the, the, the officials, so I sat on the public safety committee and the officials would literally copy and paste last term's report or last uh, last month's report and then just without change changing the date. Maybe they, change sometimes the date. they forget to change the date. They, 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 but that's how you'd, you'd know because they changed the date through most of the document and then they'd miss one. And, Come on. and the, the desire is always like, no, no, we're bringing in a new thing. Don't worry, guys. We're bringing in a new system. That was like always a mm. thing. There's a new system mm. coming in, and this is going to solve the problem. And 
by the time I was in, there had been, you know, 20 years of new systems layered on top of each other, some of which people still remembered and sort of kept going on as shambling ghosts and some of which had been forgotten, but were still technically operational. And it's incredible because I think that's one of the reasons we have bloats in the civil service. It's just because there's so many like people doing jobs for initiatives that have long since been abandoned by the people yeah, who came dude. up with them. It's a, it's a, oh, it's a strange, it's a strange beast. <sighs> but, but I mean, I think that the, I think it is kind of scary to apply to ESCOM because boy, oh boy, is that a, is that a place where you can spend a lot of money? Yeah. 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 Um, but also like, even if they could build a new good ESCOM, how long is that going to take to get off the ground? Well, dude, I mean, no matter who or how, like privatize, whatever, dude, there are going to be, there are, if you, if you just um, got South Africa's uh, theoretical capacity to be operational, um, in <laughs> other words, instead of 50% of the grid always being offline, <laughs> yes, only that would be nice. if 50% of stuff is always being maintained, some of it for planned breakdowns, some of it for unplanned breakdowns, some of it for like like there's another category beyond unplanned breakdowns which is my favorite one i can't remember the name for it can you remember uh uh i can't remember either but uh, i will never i will never forgive escom for that that time that recent time when uh, they almost broke one of the kuberg reactors because and it, and the way the news story described the problem you could see that it was literally just someone not paying attention they were working on one sort of reactor and the other one was operational. And the guy, they were working on reactor two and reactor one was working. And the guy closed the valves to the working one, not the closed one, not the off one. Yeah. Which is which is so obviously a mistake you'd make if you just weren't really like focused. Yeah. It almost, caused, it almost caused the thing to blow. It wasn't like a highly technical mistake, you know, he didn't read the schematics properly. And no, 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 no. It was just like, oh, I didn't read the number properly. <laughs> I thought the one was a two. I couldn't tell. Someone said I turn turn one so the two goes on. I heard Look, one. I was two, I was so texting I just... my girlfriend at the same time and like it's very difficult to concentrate. Dude, she was telling me she's been having bowel problems, so she was telling me she's having a number two. And so that's what I pressed. I mean, it's it. it who wouldn't make that mistake? Honestly, I was so happy for her that she finally her constipation was released. And <laughs> it's, oh, such things have taken down civilized empires, I'm sure. Yeah, and 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 uh, I think you know when the problem gets that sort of granular in ESCOM, of people literally just not paying attention, you know. Then you get the temptation to be like, oh, let's just build a new second ESCOM. Like, don't, no yeah. one has to get fired. It's such a mess. It'll be more difficult to like fix the problem. It's too hard just... to fix. I spoke to a consultant at a party recently who basically said something along the lines of, uh, she works for some consulting firm. She's like, no, 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 don't worry. We've got a plan to fix ESCOM. Uh, she works for one of the companies that's doing the consulting. According to our plan, uh, if the president just approves everything, then uh, ESCOM will be fixed in two years. And I was like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> no, look, it's not – It's. I think South Africa – I think we do have to be careful. We're so 
Like we really have the world's highest unemployment rate. Hmm. Sometimes I say this to people and they who who sort of watch the news but aren't really into second guessing it. It's not their job. They've got other things to do. And they're like, but hold on, like there's so many people that you see driving taxis that are not paying taxes and you know, working in spaza shops and there's all the informal sector, like how are they? It's like, no, no, no. Stats SA actually does a very good job of getting massive samples uh, in different provinces, in different little towns and townships and so on, so that it can keep track of what the informal sector work, workforce looks like, what the formal sector workforce looks like. And this is not an original problem. There's around the world the same kinds of issues of uh, there being... Uh, you know, some people who can buy like pretty nice houses, like a million rand house and a and a lacquer bucky, uh, selling guineas in Soweto. Um, yeah. Gigi Alcock covers these stories very well. It's like a huge casinomics economy going there. Um, and yeah, it would be a travesty to totally overlook it. But that's not what's happening. It's like our unemployment is worse than... Uh, the, the favelas of Brazil or South America more broadly. It's worse yeah. than in India by a Brazilian miles. It's worse than Indonesia. It's like you see footage from a helicopter or through a Hollywood lens of some desperate impoverished place. I'm not saying that there aren't places that are more impoverished. There definitely are. South Africa is pretty well off. GDP per capita. Um, we're 20% richer than Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is actually pretty close to us. Um, but like three, four times richer than uh, India, five times richer than Vietnam, something like that. So we, we're, we are doing better in that sense. But in terms of unemployment, we're doing worse, including informal sector. It's just amazing how badly we're doing. And there is a sense in which that should mean that we have a kind of bounce back built in. Like there's a lot of people who there's just it's just. It's just there's nowhere else in the world that's managed to pull off like this many people not working and being poor uh, ever for a very long time. So we're in like we're in uncharted territory and the epistemic conservative, you know, it's like reversion back to the, the mean, you know, going back to normal is a thing you should kind of expect. So like countries doing really, really well. I'm kind of in a certain sense expected to get back more normal. It's so doing really, really badly. Like somehow you've got to think people are just going to figure out more ways to make a buck on, on the on the side of the street, if nothing else. Um, and likewise with ESCOM, because our theoretic capacity is fifth is twice as much as our actual output. On paper, you really don't have to do much to get us to no load shedding. Right. But, but then the problem... the problem is GDP growth kicks in. And as soon as yeah. you've got real GDP growth, then you're going to hit load shedding again. So it's like you can add 5,000, you add five gigawatts of capacity and uh, we've got no load shedding. Uh, but then <laughs> add 3% real GDP growth of our 2019 base and you've and you've got load shedding again. And we need right. 5% GDP growth. So. Uh, but, but also, you know, what really struck me here was that just the kind of, the the inability to sort of, think that you know the government that's been mucking this up for a very long time might somehow be contributing to the problem and you know in this person's telling literally the only reason why things weren't happening was because Gweta Montasha was promoting coal oh dude this sounds like a real consultant this 
this is what I'm saying. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Someone who makes like, a lot more money than us. Like someone who... Oh, yeah. You get, you get, <laughs> sometimes it's very important to get paid not to think too much, right? <laughs> but in the church like, in the 1500s, like it is the, the... Obviously, they were the big high flyers. But if you wanted to be one of those people in purple who could just hang out and have a very nice life and a few basic slaves and eat delicious grapes and things. You just had to remember three lines and always repeat them. Yeah. And, and when the lines is, change, you have to change the lines and you had to, you had to guess right who's going to be in charge so that you didn't say the, the wrong person's line. <laughs> this is, this is a very big concern in the, in the medieval church uh, was, um, you know, to be a bishop, you don't have to be a priest first. And because bishops have political power, you'd often have king or something appointing his buddy as a bishop. And so routinely, you'd get exactly what you just described. A bishop who has the vaguest idea of this whole religion thing, sort of maybe he's been to church, you know, before, I guess. He's, he's seen the church. You've seen <laughs> he's it from seen the outside. It. Sure. seen it from the he, outside. You can, can like point it out on the horizon any, any time. <laughs> He's illiterate, so he can't really read, but he sort of phonetically memorized two of the lines that he has to say during a service that he does every now and again. But really, he doesn't. Yeah, it's mostly like whatever. <laughs> Dude, it really was. It was this huge thing for hundreds of years. And then out of that, eventually, there, there was enough. Somehow there was like enough largesse that you could get this sort of proverbial like English bishop come scientist person who... Yeah, and, and that's also why ready to, to hide be, in his attic and, and like do weird experiments because to be a priest to, to be a priest today in the Catholic Church, I think you need a, a master's in theology. Um, there yeah, are churches that allow super... you to kind of just show up, but like they, they yeah, they've had they've been burned <laughs> basically. They've been, they've been burned <laughs> <laughs> oh, great and cold. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's a perfect example of of this tragic. South African insecurity, you know, I, I think part of the reason that when people say African solutions for African problems, uh, it's it's a perennial winning line. It's not winning right now because uh, I think the general climate is is kind of against Pan-Africanism and Lindiwis is Sulu and Vicky mm. and all that nonsense, much more merit and sort of sees the race side of that thing. But there's another side to it which is much more reasonable, it has nothing to do with race and just does have to do with different countries having different problems. South Africa has different problems, for example, in terms of guns. Uh, um, but with Gwede and Cole, it's like, you know, if you watch CNN and BBC, and if you're a consultant, that's totally part of your universe. Uh, the, the Your news diet's going to include The Guardian, for sure. Um, and not the good old Manchester Guardian. You probably wouldn't know that the Manchester Guardian in the 18, <laughs> early 1800s is the best newspaper in the world making the good arguments to end slavery tough tough arguments biting biting at the heels of uh, of difficult and important power players now anyway if you live in that world all you know is like energy oh it's very bad call uh oh Gwede says something nice about call oh we've got the only minister in the world is saying nice things about call oh that's very terrible Right. Likewise I, with I, guns, I mean, you get the you get the tavern shootings and then you get like the most important editor in the country is like oh we should ban guns like I like your uh, Nicholas and Terence wrote a piece about this, which hopefully will be placed soon. Um, but it's uh, you know you gotta you gotta think about the country you live in. 
Right, uh, right. Like uh, if, so, if you so, want to be a so, serious person, otherwise it, it's clear. Can I can I just talk a little bit about that piece? Yes. So it was responding to to Adrian Basson, um, who who wrote he he after these horrible tavern shootings, the first one, the first big one that happened. Uh, what was it last week? I think. Yeah, he clearly was, Weto, was twenty people, nineteen like, people dead. He clearly was very upset by this, you know, understandably. Yeah. And he seems to have kind of just sat down. And at the same time, you know, the news of Shinzo Abe's assassination had come through. And so people were talking about guns in Japan. And I think he just sort of, in a moment of thinking like, oh, this just is like a bee in my bonnet. He wrote an article. And it basically says, you know, the Japanese have got it right. Just get rid of these freaking guns because this is the only way that we can bring any kind of norm normality and civilization to South Africa, which is a complete lunatic place where people get gunned down in in mass numbers by dudes with AK-47s. And then it got published the next day. But, like, Japan something, is Something not... about being the chief editor is then you don't have an editor to be like, oh, Yeah, <laughs> there was no one to on. say... Maybe we should like flesh this out a bit more because I, I see where you're coming from, but I feel like you know you should add some. I feel your pain. Add some thinking. Some detail. Add, a, add, add some IQ to this EQ. Yeah. Right. Um, and unfortunately, uh, yeah, South Africa is not Japan. South Africa is never going to be Japan. Um, if you're going to look at a country that we are far more like, it's probably the US. We are. Unlike the Japanese, who have a very sort of closed, homogenous, collectivist culture, we are freewheeling lunatics who all do our own thing, don't follow the rules, and are complete crazy people, just like the Americans. <laughs> and this is why it's going to be very difficult to get us all to follow the rules, particularly when the, the government the is completely the, we, incapable of doing it themselves. Did you just drive around the freezer? We're like the Americans, but add thatch. Like if yeah, Americans yeah, had yeah. it, which by the way, if if you like ever have lived in a thatched house, and and this is something that crosses races and class lines, like there's something about knowing that your roof is made to burn that just <laughs> changes how you think, especially when you're in a place where there's a lot of lightning, and it's we we are we are the deep south, we are the wildest west. Um, right, right. I, I, I must say, there's a part of South African history which kind of coincides, I think, with the cowboy era, or maybe it's a little bit before, where I think South Africa was probably a lot like the Wild West. Uh, you've got yeah. like these, yeah, you've got, uh, instead of the Native Americans, of course, you have the sort of uh, African tribal groups, and then you've got uh, like groups like the Griquas, who are really interesting from a sort of historical perspective because they have this whole. You know, they live in this halfway world between the sort of settled European states that cling to the coastlines and the African peoples who have agricultural societies in the center. They're like these kind of semi-nomadic horse riding uh, Mongol raiders who raid for cattle, uh, but are, are, you know, they practice polygamy, but they're also Christians. And they have this whole sort of weird mixture of two worlds together. And that stuff... I think Dude, this would is, have been, got, I, someone I needs to write a novel set in this well, period, like a cowboy novel. So so Rian um, Milan, who we've had on the show, um, I think does a, a, a he does a really good job on this in two ways. The one way is in his music. Um, he's got my favorite song is a song about Kunrad Bass, who is this like 
Boer in the Cape, uh, close to the frontier during the frontier wars, who I think the story is that he's, you know, he's sleeping with one of the black colored, whatever you want to say, um, staff, slaves, I don't know. Uh, it's not, uh, he's sort of caught. It's, it's, um, the, the, his father-in-law is sort of unimpressed by this behavior and tells him to come to church and pray for forgiveness and it's going to be okay. And he kind of sticks with it for a week. And then the next week he's like, no, bugger this. And he, and he chats with the lady and she's like, yeah, dude, I'll come with you if you want to go. So, so he hitches up, steals a few horses and he and his, and his, uh, and his best ride off into the sunrise um uh sort of leaving uh, at 3 a.m or whatever sort of bullets clipping around their heels the hooves splatter clatter across the the desert rocks stuff oh dude that's how a cowboy adventure starts and the nice thing about it the british will maybe at cray in very um the, the 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 beautiful thing about this epic journey is that I mean in the end he he like I don't know lands up like in Mpumalanga or Limpopo, like he he makes it a super far away settles down and there's like dude I've seen interviews I've saw a documentary about the people in this village there's still there's like this whole village where everyone's descended from this guy like 200 years later um, and because he became because he because he accumulated this sort of vast harem and mm. knew how to work guns and learned sort of um, Bantu languages and helped to translate and warn people about the British and how terrible they were, but the Dutch, like the Boers, the Dutch at the time, mm. you can't really trust those guys much either. Anyway, it's very, the song kind of captures the spirit, but at the same time, his, his most famous book, My Trader's Heart, really captures the other side of that spirit um, beautifully in his analysis of the word doper. I mean, if you know anything mm -hmm. about uh, South African Christian uh, history, the Dopers, uh, very important Afrikaans sect, and the and the the a Doper is a candle snuff, and he sees in that like this is the only sect to be named after a candle snuff. He sees in that this sort of uh, metonym for the thought that these guys were trying to snuff out the Enlightenment. That they'd arrived in Africa, that it was way too wild to be reading Immanuel Kant or Rousseau <laughs> or contemplating poetry or daffodils, you know, romantic, like, never mind romanticism, Righteous. never mind the Enlightenment. You got to go back to the very beginning. And the point of it is that the Bible is like, you need to make Bibles that are big enough to, to like, the great biblical story by the end of the 19th century is that Paul Kruger, with his bare hands and a Bible, killed a lion when he was 14 years old like, that's what it comes down to folks. <laughs> it's heracles all over again <laughs> yes i think i think there's yeah i think there's there's a there's an absolute treasure trove of uh fiction non-fiction culture uh, action, adventure, all sorts of romance, all sorts of things you can draw out of that period of our history. And it is, I think, understudied and under under taught. Yeah, because, dude, you've just you know, got to, you've got to get over the yeah. idea that all the white dudes are going to be villains and all the black dudes are going to be yeah, exactly. Because 
there's goodies because and baddies of all sorts, like doing weird, it's not, it, it, wild things. You know, it has it that has been a period that has never been useful to any group of race nationalists, no matter which race they they yeah. support. <laughs> it's so and good. that's why it's been kind of abandoned because it was embarrassing for Afrikaners because of how you know, like this is a thing that you know that they I would they taught us a little bit about it in 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 undergrad history at university. Yeah. But it was very much a like all right, there's this thing, and most of it was focused on how the boys were all taking slaves, and the rest of it was focused on like how the color discrimination began in like yeah. uh, diamond stuff. But there was little glimpses of this, and one of the things that really struck me was how, when the boys first moved into the Transvaal, um, how for the local African hetmen and villages and chiefs and stuff, it was very, there was probably very little change from when the Indibele had ruled the region because you just paid your taxes to a different dude now. And it was yeah. paler than the last one, but otherwise it yeah. was like kind of the Dude, same. It's like, <laughs> it's like Trump was president, Biden was president. Some people are excited. A lot of people yeah. are like, yeah. In fact, that's probably made a bigger difference. Like, <laughs> yes. It's probably more and, Americans who care more in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. And over time, you know, the differences yeah. did come come out, particularly as the, the towns got built and the the states got set up and all this other stuff. Coal but initially, taxes get it was extracted and mining and labor. Exactly, it was it was it's very much like a yeah a sort of ah uh, we just got to roll with you know new boss same as the old boss whatever who cares yeah uh, yeah and 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 <laughs> that kind of worked for everyone for a while <laughs> until it didn't because people had ideas. Yeah, but I must say there have been some like fictional attempts. I remember before the plague there was like. There was in Kleber, which did very well, this sort of story of like quite real uh, drama about uh, circumcision rights in Eastern Cape. But before that, there were a couple of like the Cinema Nouveau movies that uh, seemed to be doing well made in South Africa that were like Westerns, but shot in the Klein Karoo. Um So I think there's, a, there's an understanding that at the very least in terms of the natural environment and uh, the sort of, you know, the way the, the way the Sutus wear blankets is so similar to the way the, the sort of classic uh, middle American poncho um, right. and the hat, the Sutu hat and the sombrero, you know, there, there are clear. Um, have, have you seen the environmental the movie that came out a while ago? Five fingers for Marseille. Yes. That's what, that's the best one I'm referring to. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, I yeah. when I watched it, uh, it was it was great because I mean it was it wasn't set in this period, but it was no. like a cowboy story but it's using in modern that... South Africa. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In it's in, in some foreign part of the free state that you know no one goes to. <laughs> it's yeah. like close to Lesotho, and no one with money ever has been there except a government official. It's lovely, man. It's a lovely thing about it's a lovely thing about our land. Yes. So we have, I don't know. We have this. Uh, we have this this interesting environment, and I think it's an interesting. I think it's been an interesting week for it, even if the most um, tasty, spicy revelation is that to solve its problems, uh, we're going to add uh, one escom to another. <laughs> If ESCOM 1 was so great, how come they never made an ESCOM 2? No, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. 
Aren't you supposed to make sequels out of box office successes? Like, <laughs> no, this is like one of those director video uh, uh, um, uh, movies that made just enough money to justify a sequel. <laughs> oh, no, but it did. did it made enough. It didn't even make no, enough even money. Better. Yeah, it's 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 the box office. It's the director video movie that was used as a tax. To, to reduce the the, the tax yes. bracket of the company that produced it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, we've come such a sad long way from like uh, from oh, from our from our wonderful promising start. Okay, but maybe we should go from the from from our wild west deep south to back to the Middle East. Um, yeah, I was going to say something about our court cases. Next week, I'll just foreshadow. I want to mm. talk about the, you know, the Americans have been having this January 6th trial. It's not really a trial, it's a congressional hearing, but it's it's sort of like another trial by media. Well, that's all. I'm, convinced, Trump. I'm yeah. convinced some of the reason that it's got all these trial elements is because there's too many goddamn lawyers in America and everything is filtered through a lawyer's prison. <laughs> I know. I have been listening to Lord Sumption again, who I recommended a long time ago. Um, before he became famous because of his uh, anti-lockdown attitudes in the plague, former Supreme Court justice in, in the UK, um, to his BBC Reef lectures where he's just like really sort of starts out with a joke about the difference between the rule of law and the rule of lawyers. The joke, there's no difference in the UK or the US. Like, <laughs> this is... <laughs> you can't tell the difference because there ain't none. Uh, there's lawyers everywhere. They're like, they're like cockroaches. Only <laughs> cockroaches at least go to sleep at some point. <laughs> no, <I see. laughs> um, but, but but I think that it's nice. It's nice to remember the ideals. Um, but, but look, it, I, I think it's pretty transparent what's happening. You know, a lot of this is trying to save the Democrats from from a, a really bad red wave uh in in 2022 some of it is very well intentioned some of it's useful but i think that there are some interesting aspects to it and this is what i want to foreshadow uh, it should be discussed um this question of um for example someone like steve bannon who's turned around this week uh well i think at least since our last podcast maybe on sunday and said he'd said i i refuse to testify i refuse to testify i refuse to testify basically like zuma right Right. I refuse to testify because this is like the Zondo Commission in a sense. Yeah. And uh, the question of like, if you refuse to testify, what does it mean? And I think that I think that it's fair for me to say uh, we are lo looking to go forward on joining the Jacob Zuma case um, in terms of his detention without trial, in terms of his medical parole from that detention without trial. I think that it's a, I think that it's actually something more interesting than it's been made out to be. Mostly it's been uh you know <clears throat> anyone who was awake that night when Zuma was arrested it was some of the most stunningly riveting South African television that will ever be made. <laughs> um so I'm not saying it's more interesting than that but intellectually it's been pretty desiccated. It's you know somehow there's been this dry space of like what of what to think. It's sort of, it's just like he said, she said, who's bad, Fraser's bad, Zuma's bad. Uh, I actually think it's quite interesting. And 
we want to join the case at the Concord because we think that there's something that's gone unsaid that's really important. Um, but it's kind of a bigger discussion, and we're and we've pushed on the hour mark, and um, I've, and we both want to talk a little bit about the Middle East where we started. So anyway, I'm happy this week because we've because our lawyers' letters have actually gone out on this. So we'll we'll announce it formally to the to the world and and maybe try to do some fundraising around it or whatever. But like for now, it's just to you guys. Um, yeah, there's this interesting thing on the horizon for us, or actually not just in the pipeline, actually sort of in the works so uh <clears throat> i wanted to talk a little bit about the middle east just because it's kind of i think there's sort of interesting things going on um so joe biden is traveling to the middle east and it's it's been described as a middle east trip but it's not a middle east trip it's a saudi arabia trip and i'm also going to some other places so it doesn't just look like i'm going to saudi arabia <laughs> right but he needs to suck up with the saudis right because like yes. The biggest, I would, in some ways, the biggest shift in American relations between the Trump administration and the Biden administration seems to be like that the Saudis and the Americans are doing better and better, and that's good for Israel, it's good for America, and so on, and and now they're doing worse and worse and worse, right? Yeah, so, so Biden kind of, for no obvious reason, apart from maybe personal conviction, but... You know, in American politics, I very much doubt that that's the reason for a lot of many things. <laughs> uh, you're so he... old, Nicholas. You're so young, but you're so old. <laughs> he, uh, he made a very big song and dance about, uh, you know, holding Saudi Arabia to account for the murder of, uh, um, what's his name? Khashoggi. Uh, Khashoggi. Khashoggi is his surname, but uh, what's his first name? I can't remember. Uh, anyway, Suleiman. Khashoggi, who... Uh, who is this? Yeah. Who is this writer? You know, he was a he was an activist and a and a Washington Post. He was a kind of yeah. He uh, I don't know. He was a <laughs> he had a famously good. He was a, yeah, well, he was he had a, he had a lot of friends at the Washington Post who he occasionally wrote for. But um, you know, he was a little bit close to Al Qaeda. I think he interviewed Osama bin Laden a couple of times. He was a bit of a dissident in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he, he he sort of. He was kind of halfway between a journalist and a sort of political activist type of guy. Anyway, like um, us, yeah, like us, uh, except we don't hang out with some blood. But anyway, <laughs> our, um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman or someone senior in his government basically tricked him into coming into the embassy for a document, uh, the Saudi embassy for a document, and then appears to have killed him and chopped him into pieces in Turkey and then uh, tried to cover it up in hilariously incompetent ways as the Saudis tend to be when it comes to, you know, basically anything. Saudi not Arabia anything. They're, Saudi, they're good at some things, just not good at violence. They're, they're, yeah, they... Their state is not very efficient because Dude, they're so good at oil. Yeah, they're, they, <laughs> they're good at managing the politics of oil, but they're not good at, <laughs> at, at doing a lot of other stuff. Violence, violence. They are. Yeah, they are. They are. They are essentially still, in many ways, a feudal society, right? Like a lot of people in the state are appointed because they're relatives of the ruling clan. Um, On and, the other hand, now women can drive. So, welcome to. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, you know. You know. I have complex. No, I know. Yeah, we, um, yes. But, but he's. They. Yeah. They're, <laughs> so, so there are some very legitimate reasons to be very harsh on Saudi Arabia. Never mind the fact right. that it's. 
you know, literally an, an absolute monarchy where human rights are severely curtailed. Despite yeah. the improvements in recent years, it's still very nasty. Anyway, Biden made a very big song and dance about like, Saudi's terrible. I'm going to hold them to account. Mohammed bin Salman's not going to get away with this. Uh, and this was also partly driven by the fact that the Trump administration, as you said, was probably the closest an American administration has ever been to um, to the Saudis. Yeah. And I have seen allegations that the Saudi state investment fund, which obviously takes all that sweet oil money invested in things around the world, I think they've just become the second largest stockholder in Aston Martin, for example. Anyway, uh, invested absolutely enormous amounts in Jared Kushner's finances, which seems a little bit like something that someone should look into. But anyway, um, that aside. Yeah. Because uh, Jared Kushner was, was the main link in the Trump administration between the Saudis and... and he and was Trump. the brain. Right. Um, and, and he's clearly, I think, personal friends with um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, so they they hung out a lot together. And I think that was a big part of the channel that opened that relationship. Yeah, but part of it was also just uh, just to say, because th this is why I'm invested in it, part of um, what seemed important, and this totally predated Trump, it just sort of uh, kept going, um, was a breakdown in both religious and racial uh you know there, there there's a middle eastern there's a version of the middle eastern world which has totally existed where it's like all muslims against the jews hmm. that's not good uh then there's a version where it's like all the non-whites against the whites which is similar I, I don't think that they really care about that so much or think about it in that way uh, and then there's a sort of sunni shia thing and I don't. Uh, there, there is a there is a question about sort of unleashing the demons and not being able to control them, but but as for you know, I think as far as we've talked about, I sort of defer to you on this. Um, the 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 Saudis were kind of at the cutting edge of of a a a, a, a shift in the balance of forces. That put yeah. Iran, Mohammed bin Salman in particular, right? Because that displaced he, Israel with Iran as like by far yes. the major concern, so and that's, that that's changed a, the alliance system in that a is way a, that, that I is think a complicated is a little, shift that has a lot of causes, but more um, reason responsible. Exactly, it's been going for a while, right. but it's a more reason and responsive thing than just part like of it is because thing. of Obama's uh, 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 desire to have a sort of essentially a truce with the Iranians through the Iran yeah. deal. Part of it was driven by the fact that the Saudis and Israelis have been kind of secretly cooperating behind the scenes since like the 90s on a yeah. low level. Uh, yeah. Part of it is driven by the fact that Mohammed bin Salman being, I think, basically your age. I think he's yeah. about the same age as you, maybe slightly younger. Um, and the fact that he's far more yeah. ambitious and also powerful than previous uh, uh, Saudi monarchs has... He's got a very serious desire to change the way that Saudi Arabia works into being a more um, modern country rather than basically a giant piece of oil that funds a medieval system, <laughs> which is what it's been for the last, you know, since his since his great grandfather, whenever united the most of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so, 
uh, that's that's that, that all of those factors have kind of come together. And I mean, uh, I I once listened to a podcast where they made this absolutely great analogy, which is uh, I think it was 1907. Um, people all around the world were incredibly enthusiastic because Russia and Britain had just signed this great truce peace agreement that had settled what had been a century of conflict between the two, this, the so-called Great Game, which was this conflict over mostly Central Asia, but also other parts of the world. And the idea here was, you know, finally there had been peace in our time because uh, Britain and Russia, these ancient rivals, had put aside their differences and were now coming together as allies and peaceful people for a better world. Well, no, the only reason they signed that agreement was because Germany was becoming more dangerous and more powerful. And they realized yeah. that they had a, a mutual foe in the Germans. Um, and so the, that peace agreement was the prelude to a much bigger and more destructive conflict, which was the First World War. And in this case, you can see a similar circumstance where Saudi and Israel are kind of like the uh, uh, the Russians and the British. And the English, yeah. Yeah, signing an agree a peace agreement because Iran is now very close to getting a bomb. Anyway, um, so Biden decided to stop off first in in Israel Palestine, uh, firstly because you know as America's closest ally there. Obama made the mistake of when he when went you to say Middle Israel East, Palestine, not... did he actually go into Palestine? Yeah, he's there today. He's in Bethlehem, uh, meeting the Palestinian Authority guy uh, Abbas. Um, anyway, so. He's there. Uh, it's it's usually seen as as good a diplomatic practice for the Americans to go to Israel Palestine first because that's kind of where a lot of their energy and uh, allies are focused. Um, and he's one of the interesting things he did there was he issued a joint statement with the Israelis where he said something that I I was quite shocked by considering the Biden administration has tended to be pretty thick I think on Iran policy, uh, and that was to promise as a last resort military action against Iran if it be, if it looks like it's about to develop a nuclear weapon. This was a statement made with Israel. Yeah, so doesn't that just seem... Can I... So that's... That? So that's the, uh, it's not just, just, just smart, kind of but doesn't it seem like probably comes from the foreign... Of, like, like it comes from the deep state, shall we say. It comes from the bureaucrats. It comes from the permanent... And a sign of their, like, maybe them showing some confidence in good ideas. So I think, I think that, that it, it, we can't tell where how sincere that claim is, right? Because I think the last thing Biden wants to do right now is fight a war with Iran. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. at least from a sort of, as you might say, a Batner perspective of saying that this is what's going to happen if you guys don't sign an Iran deal with us. And, you know, this makes sense. Yeah. So I don't know how sincere they are because they may just be saying this with the expectation that they're going to get a deal with Iran and never have to think about it. Uh, okay. But still, it's probably a pretty good diplomatic move. Um, also, the other background to this is that Israel and Iran are, the tensions between them are just heating up. Israel has assassinated an enormous number of senior Iranian um, people to do who are connected to the nuclear program there, which... And it's pretty blatant. It's like people on a, on a motorbike driving past a nuclear scientist's car and machine gunning it all of a sudden and driving off into the distance. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't know for no, sure it's, it's Mossad, but it's probably Mossad. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, and Iran, in retaliation, has been planning uh, to attack senior American officials. I mean, John, uh, 
Bolton was one of them, but also other ones. Apparently, it has plans to try and assassinate. And they recently tried to pull off a proxy terrorist attack against Israeli civilians in Turkey, who were then who the, the Israelis managed to get a hold of this information beforehand and evacuate all of their civilians from Istanbul before it happened. But you can see that we're all very kind of hair-triggered here. Um, and Israel continues to strike Iranian troops who are in Syria supporting the Syrian government, which which is a kind of uh, uh, and Hezbollah, which is which is Iran's yeah. ally in Lebanon and Syria. Proxy. So, a lot of very um, nasty, tense things going on in that part of the world. So that's kind of the backdrop. Uh, but the real the real goal of why Biden is going there has actually got nothing to do with any of this, and that's that he wants to go to Saudi Arabia and try and fix that relationship because he needs the Saudis to pump more oil to bring when, down the price of oil to help with right. uh, people's uh, back pockets yeah front Precisely. pockets i don't know whichever pocket it is you keep your money in something something like a third of americans say that gas prices and inflation in general are there unprompted in surveys are saying this is their biggest problem um it's by far the biggest issue currently in surveys and biden's administration has had not much of a good story to tell. Inflation was what nine point one percent is the most recent figure, which is the highest since nineteen eighty one, I think, something like that. Um, and the Biden administration's response up to this point has been to say something along the lines of, "No, no, 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 it's not that bad," <laughs> which is not a great. Oh my god, dude! That like that new Biden press secretary. Gee, I know we've made fun of her. But then I saw her do another one where she said the economy is doing like she literally said the economy is never doing better. She did not right. say She said right. something to the effect, some some synonym of the economy is never doing better. If you look at the right markets. This this is this has literally been their messaging uh and it is true, GDP has never been higher, but yeah uh, it's but uh, but clearly this this you know, yeah. never mind of what's true, right? Just as a terms of political messaging and strategy, this is clearly not a good idea to tell people that they're not in pain when a lot no, of. No, but you must mind what's true pain. because, you, well, right. Another way to put it is that traditionally, the it 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 it, it did. This is exactly what irritated me about the Republican Party when I was a kid and I first learned about American politics, and I and I learned to hate the Republican Party and love the Democratic Party. Is that the Republican Party would be like. It doesn't matter. Just look at the GDP numbers. If they're up, we're fine. Then everything's fine. Stop complaining. Right, right. No, the, the, the GDP numbers are true, but they are under they they are they are underdetermined. All of the other things that are also true. Right. Um, Something like I, I believe real. And you have to be like really inhuman to right to not care about. And I, and I think I think I think something I think I also heard recently on the the commentary podcast that um, real wages have fallen by about three uh, percent uh, over the last year, which yeah. that's a bad sign, right? That's people literally getting poorer, and when you're in government, that's never something you want your populace. Oh, no, to no one, no, yeah, they're not giving you a high five for that. In yeah, general, yeah. So trying to tell them, look, guys, we know that you have less money to spend. But the thing is, but the thing is, there this... is more money. It's like a hundred dollars. I know a hundred dollars yeah. buys you less, but you still have a hundred dollars. But... You've got a hundred dollars. Yeah. So that's nice. <laughs> there's this, there's this. Let's go back to the first econometric... part of that sentence. You have a hundred dollars. <laughs> right. 
So, so, so Biden, Biden wants the Saudis to pump more gas, also to kind of put pr pressure on the Russians, right? This is a very old, going back to the Cold War, uh, sort of uh, thing between the the Americans yeah. and the Saudis is whenever the Russians are causing trouble, uh, you get the Saudis to pump more oil to make the Russians have a part of time selling their oil, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the basis, basically, of why America and Saudi Arabia are allied, despite the fact they have very little in common in terms of sort of yeah. identities and, and ideologies. This is why per GDP unit, Saudi Arabia owns more American paper than anyone else <laughs> in the world. Right, right. Also. So, he, and he's got, can he's I just got say, these... finally, also why the Saudis don't have to be good at violence, because they know... That it's like yeah. their big brother is the is the biggest bully right. in the whole world. S Saudi Arabia's defense and strategy always owes them a favor. So, so the royal family of Saudi Arabia is afraid of a lot of the Arab monarchies disappeared because they were overthrown by the military uh, in the in the fifties and 60s. so they were like, here's our solution. A yeah, we will just <laughs> yes, <laughs> we will have a military and we will fund it enormously, but we won't train it, make it competent, or make it efficient on purpose so that it is as terrible as possible so that it can never overthrow us. <laughs> I, it isn't, it's so nice when humans do learn from history, just if nothing else, to prove that it can be done. Yes. <laughs> and so the, the end result of this is that the Saudis' defense strategy is something along the lines of buying absolutely massive stockpiles of American weapons, putting them in bunkers in the desert, and if they're ever invaded, they will wait for the American army to arrive and then simply just wheel out all of the heavy equipment they've been storing for immediate yeah. use. <laughs> Which is... I mean... They've got American paper, American weapons... <laughs> They are, it's so weird because you think of the Americans as being the guys, for example, in World War II who supplied the guns, the, the you know, the, the heavy guns and money and the Soviets supplied the blood. And it's like, yes. well, if there's a war in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> the Americans <laughs> are going to be the Soviets around. and the Soviets are going to be the Americans. I mean, the Saudis yeah, are right. going to be the Americans. Well, yeah, it's a very, it's a very sort of strange thing. Um, now, Mohammed bin Salman, is also known to have a bit of a temper. And, you know, with Saudi, because particularly because Mohammed bin Salman is very powerful as a monarch, the sense that there's a deep state doesn't exist to the same degree, I think, in which there is in other major countries, right? Russia, China, Britain, America, it doesn't matter where you look. Like, By the way, by which all we mean is just a bureaucracy, like Max Viva, right, right. whatever, go back forever. Yeah. But but like the, the bureaucracy is just not the same. It doesn't have the same. Even Xi Jinping, you know, even though he's an autocrat and all that, still has to, there's still a, a bureaucracy which kind of functions independently of his will. Careerists are climbing up and down a ladder. Right. It's an esteem unit. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a crystallization of esteem and and property in the sense that like you need in a bureaucracy, you need the people above you and alongside you and below you to respect you enough to promote you. And that means that there are going to be non-political reasons for promotion and demotion. That's something just, right. I'm just underlining this because Max Weber is my favorite. And I think most underrated so, political science of the 20th century. And it's so obviously what South Africa is missing because we had this yes. deliberate um, for, for because of, getting you know 
undoing apartheid by getting rid of definitely some white racists in the bureaucracy. Uh, also sort of getting rid of this, as it turns out, very important system of, of, of uh, stability, which is just having people who, whose main concern is not helping the customer and it's not serving a political agenda. It's just surviving and getting promoted by kind right. of uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and showing up on time and like doing like office busy work. Yeah, senior, promotion through seniority and nothing else. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, the so Saudi these, state yeah, used yeah. to be a little bit more consultative because each branch, because it's it's like it's it's heavily divided by based on like lineages because it's polygamous. Uh, it's based on the sort of polygamous family structure. You have all the brothers from each particular mother tend to form a political faction together, right? So. Right. Uh, and they 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 vie for for power between themselves, and so a lot of the Saudi state up until Mohammed bin Salman was balancing between these factions. You know, you'd pay off. By the way, so do they also do that thing where they kind of where the brothers live together often and will have their women live together with them? Or is I'm not a... actually sure. I'm not actually okay. sure that may. I know that that was the traditional way of doing it, but I'm not sure if they do it anymore. Anyway, so uh, when Mohammed bin Salman came to power he didn't like having to consult so many family members every time he wanted to make a decision. So he just put them all in jail and possibly yeah. killed some of them. In hotel, uh, hotel jail. Right. That was great. <laughs> yeah, very nice jail. Um, and as a result, he has far more direct say over the entire administration than anyone else ever has in that country's history. He is a, truly an absolute so monarch. In that sense, it's less Byzantine, more, more paper. More more, more papal, more Louis the Fourteenth. Even the Pope has to kind of still negotiate with cardinals and Catholics. Right, but between between the papal system and the, and yeah, the think uh, think Genghis Khan. I guess there's no one who's coming to you like, well, he likes me. He wouldn't do that to me. It's like no, no, no. right, right. If, if 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 Biden or Trump don't like another political leader. It's definitely going to hurt relations, but at the end of the day, there's so many bureaucrats and diplomats and officials and people to kind of like keep policy going on without that. If like you annoy Mohammed, right, exactly. And if you oil. annoy Mohammed bin Salman, he can cut you off from the Saudi state. He can break relations between Saudi Arabia and your country tomorrow, <laughs> right? Mm. He, can, he can just go ahead and do it, and no one can stop him. Christ. And so. This blaming Muhammad bin Salman for Khashoggi's death very publicly not, not wise really got up Muhammad bin Salman's nose. Apparently, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was instructed by the Biden administration to raise the issue in the first meeting between them and Muhammad bin Salman, um, just after Biden had been sworn in. Anthony Blinken went to visit Saudi Arabia, and according to some of the reporting on this, Muhammad bin Salman said, "I'm never speaking to you again if you keep bringing this up." shut up and go away. Not quite those words, but very close to those words. Yeah. And so much so that when the Russia-Ukraine war started, Mohammed bin Salman apparently did not answer any of Biden's phone calls. Uh, which, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if Biden phoned Putin, Putin would probably pick up the phone. <laughs> and yet Mohammed bin Salman was able to <laughs> avoid, avoid picking up the phone to Biden. So, this kind of shows the importance the world of the is so human. It's amazing right. how many humans there are in the world. It's, it's not computer <laughs> programs. 
<laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so this this really shows that like when dealing with Saudi, like a personal relationship is important. And that's precisely why Biden is going there. He's now probably going to have a meeting with Mohammed bin Salman and be like, look, dude, I mean, some things were said. Some people were cut into pieces. <laughs> Let's let my God. My God. <laughs> dude, I'm so tempted to, like, do you think, is there, like, who is Biden's doctor? And does Biden's doctor get told by his political advisors, it'd be nice if you gave him some of the friendly pills for this one? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sorry. Sure. Maybe that's not a nice joke, but I kind of feel like. <laughs> so, here's the here's the political problem for Biden, though. He's really, it's difficult for him because he doesn't want to look like he's having to go and submit to a foreign autocrat, which is what he's had to do. But at the yeah. same time, no, never great when you have to do what you can't look like. You have to do what you have to do, especially when you which are is... a symbolical figure. So the whole point of doing it is to do it like exactly publicly. So, so, so that's partly, partly why he's first gone to Israel, because to make it look like he's just sort of visiting various... Oh, right, this is just a Middle East visit. We're going around. Right, exactly. And the second thing, the second genius thing they came up with, and I really think this is genius. So the Biden administration has not been able to quite figure out what its message on COVID is. It's tried both. It's tried... COVID is still a serious problem, and it's going to kill everyone unless we take proper precautions. And at the same time, it's also tried to say, and because of us, we defeated COVID. <laughs> now, mm. They have very strategically deployed the former reason at this moment to avoid yeah. having to shake hands with Mohammed bin Salman. Biden has said that he will not be shaking any foreign leader's hand during the trip because they are worried about coronavirus, which is so genius because he doesn't want a photo of him shaking Mohammed bin Salman's hand. <laughs> Oh my word. Oh my word. <laughs> I think it's clever. I think that's actually <laughs> rare genius, genius from the Biden administration. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Oh, oh, that's what it's all about, man. Oh, no. <laughs> which, oh. which is just, it's just so good. <laughs> Oy vey. Yeah, man. So, Oy. Um, the other thing that's been going on is I know the, that, I know um, I know the feeling because I know some people have been very the COVID finesse is sort of how yes. I categorize it in my brain. Like there's <laughs> there's some good COVID finesses out there. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. Um, but against all of this, you know, the tensions with Iran and stuff, there has been a little bit more sawing in the relationship between Israel and Saudi. So even though Saudi's been kind of helping along all of this um, warming with Israel. They still have continued to take a relatively hard line themselves, officially. Uh, Saudi just still does not recognize Israel's existence as a legitimate state, despite the fact that they are pretty openly cooperating on a whole bunch of things. Didn't they sign the Abraham Accords? They did not. It was only the UAE and Bahrain, which are their allies, and Bahrain right. is basically Saudi's minion. They're like a vassal that it... So they're still sort of working up to it. Um, but today, recently, there have been a bunch of big breakthroughs. So there is an island in, you know, where Israel at the very bottom joins like the Red Sea uh, between Sinai and the Arabian Peninsula. There's like a very little narrow channel there that goes into the bottom of, of Israel. Okay. I think during the Six Day War or during the Yom Kippur War, there was an Egyptian island which had originally been Saudi but was given to Egypt that Israel captured 
and they've occupied it since, even though it's still technically Egyptian territory. And yes. recently, as part of the efforts to warm relations with Saudi, the Egyptians said, look, we're going to give you back this island because we don't control it anyway. The Israelis own it, in effect. So but, it's de facto de jure, and we'll, we'll just line it right. up. We'll recognize it. Yeah. It's de jure Egypt, and we yeah. might make it de jure Saudi, and we also want the Israelis to get off it because they've been there for too long. And oh, okay, so it's like, oh, so it's trying to make things worse, actually. It's trying, it's trying to, like, shift the thorn <laughs> in the side. No, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a strategic island because it's like a place that you can basically control that little channel, right? It's important yeah. for the Israelis because if that island has, like, a big anti-ship missile on it, then I'm that's something important. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's making the, the Egyptians, so they're trying to make things worse by, by trying to make this literally a wedge between the Saudis and the Israelis. Well, no, no, no. So it's supposed to be a gesture of goodwill. It's supposed to say, look, we've wanted to give this back to Saudi for a long time um, because it wasn't originally oh, ours we, anyway. We yeah. as the Israelis... As the, as, the, as the Egyptians. The Egyptians want no, to give it back to Saudi. But this doesn't make sense. This is not a good no, let, let, let me finish. Okay. They say, they say, look, we want to give this to Saudi. Uh, relations are good between us and Israel. That's fine. And the Israelis have been blocking us transferring this to Saudi for a long time. But now because relations are warming between Israel and Saudi, the Israelis will leave this island and give it to Saudi Arabia. But will the Israelis leave the island? So they have agreed to. And in return, oh wow! So then it is a lovely yes. I see. Huh. You see, and in in return, the Saudis said, "Okay, uh, now all Israeli flights to the UAE can fly over Saudi Arabia because up until now, and yeah. a flight to Israel could not fly over uh, Saudi Arabia. But it's just gotten even better because um, just today, Saudi Arabia announced that all airlines can fly, even uh, Israel's airline L L L. What's it called?" Something like that. Uh, L -R. Is there L -R? No, it's not LL. I can't remember the name. I, I can't believe I forgot the name. Anyway, the Israeli airline will also be allowed to fly planes over Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia has officially opened up its airspace to civilian planes from Israel, which is a really big deal for... LL. Uh, yeah, for, for, for Israelis who might want to travel to... Uh, India, for example, right? Because now they don't have to go around Saudi. They could just go straight. And they can also go to Bahrain and the UAE. And there's also some speculation that secretly under the table, the Israelis and Saudis have promised that in the event of an Iranian attack on each of them, they will warn the other. Uh, that's not confirmed, but there's speculation that that has been agreed under the table. So they basically have... Despite the fact that Saudi still we, does not we don't, recognize we don't Israel, recognize each other, but we're like close, we're like blood brothers, but, <laughs> but we are also basically in close to a military alliance, <laughs> which is yeah. Um, Humans. and there's another thing which might be human allowed, which I, human. Yeah. I haven't read about but has been speculated about, which is that Saudi will allow Israeli Muslims to travel to Mecca directly from Israel. Uh, which up until now has not been allowed. They've had to go. Yeah, all of my, all of the people I know, have had, you have to have two passports to basically sort of yeah. navigate these. So, still a lot of complications, but there's definite thawing in that relationship, and I, I, I suspect that the Saudis will probably only pull the trigger on full uh, recognition so, of Israel in return for some kind of bribe from either America or Israel. 
okay, but so it sounds good. It sounds like Biden's doing the right thing. It sounds like yeah. he can do it. It sounds like um, the continued he's uh, he's, he's doing the right of... thing by not getting in in the way, <laughs> which is very much That's what right. American presidents could be tempted to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. Middle East. Um, and he's also kind of boosting things up against Iran. And I think part of the reason for that is apparently the UAE. Uh, has been getting nervous now that uh, Israel and America are not actually going to do anything about Iran, and so they're starting to open feelers to Iran to maybe talk about switching sides. And that has spooked, I think, the Israelis, Americans, and Saudis, because this that is... is yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is not, not a good development, because the UAE is probably the most competent of all of the Gulf monarchies. They are cunning, they are wealthy, and they have invested a lot in technological and economic development beyond oil. Yeah. Um, so losing them from your side would be a very bad thing. Anyway, so, yeah, those are basically my thoughts. Um, nothing too scandalous. Uh, Biden's doing some things that are probably much better. This is a, probably some of the first wins he's had in a while because he's had a, a lot of not wins. Um, he's had a couple of bad months of, of news cycles. So this is probably his first good one in a while. And uh, yeah, I, on one hand, like I said, there's some really good things here. It's definitely more peace in the Middle East. And at the same time, it could just be the calm before the storm, which is, uh, which will probably, you know, I mean, that's going to be pretty dramatic if it does happen because who knows how many countries might get involved in a fight between Israel and Iran. Mm. Could be a lot. Uh, not least Lebanon, not least Iraq, Syria. And no one knows quite how close Iran is to a nuclear weapon, despite all of the Israeli assassination assassinations of key figures. Uh. And uh, for those who may not remember... Uh, Israel and South Africa secretly developed nuclear weapons together in what the 70s. So uh, Israel does have quite a few bombs, although it has never admitted that it has them. It's estimated to have something like 60 warheads. Yeah, everybody knows. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the difficulties is that outright war between two nuclear powers is uh, not a very well tested terrain, especially where the wars present as existential wars. But especially, yeah. and the third factor is really the one that tilts it, because I think a lot in this year's uh, in the in the Ukrainian war, uh, sort of, you know, it's like yeah, a lot of like, uh, um, I think misunderstandings of how nuclear weapons work in war, uh, mostly mm -hmm. as Batna. Uh, but I think when the war is about the race to get a nuclear weapon. That is another factor that right. uh, that just stands uh, out as as fresh uncharted terrain. So you know, a, a competition between two nuclear powers that has been prompted by either the discovery or the anticipation that one of them is going to get nuclear power, and in which there's in such close proximity and share relative parity, um, such that yeah. it's it just it just bone obviously is a kind of existential war that just adds up to. And we're, worst, yeah, we're getting worst, there, there's, there's there's other complicating worst. factors here, which is that you know if Iran does have develop a nuclear weapon, it's not going to have a lot, right? It's probably just going to have like one or two warheads. Yeah, but 
because Israel is so small, that gives them kind of quite the ability to possibly do quite a lot of damage. Um, they've also been really accelerating their long-range ballistic missile program. So Iran actually launched a satellite, a big satellite this year, uh, like a month or two ago. And part of uh, and satellite technology is connected very intimately with long-range ballistic missiles, right? Because the same technology allows you to get the big blinking metal box into space is the same thing that allows you to deliver a warhead across long distances. Yeah, dude, Iran's got pretty deep tech. And I think that I'm also worried by um, reports, I think in the last week, that Iran has been supplying Russia drones. with uh, yeah. large numbers of drones. The Iranians and, have been uh, also investing a lot in drone technology, I think, to compete with the Israelis who are also leaders in drones. And so that's... I wonder, you know, I, what are they getting in exchange? Just money? I hope it's just money. Uh, <laughs> Look, I, I, you know me, I'm not a huge fan of the Russians, but I have the, I hope that they, I, I'm pretty confident they have the good sense not to give Iran nuclear things. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I, I, I agree. Um, that's not my suspicion, but my, but there are a lot of in-betweeners. Um, yeah. And in terms of converting your 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 missile delivery systems from one role to another, you need little in betweeny parts and little software dinguses. And in terms of targeting, right? And and also, of, you know, there's all kinds of also legal. just money. By My itself sense of is very engineering. The Iranians, the Iranians yeah. are a little bit cash strapped, so even money would actually help. I feel like they can afford. I, I yeah, I feel like they've got enough. But I think that my sense from engineers is that is that people often talk about the last mile problem, right? Or the last ten percent, mm. like the transport system. And you've if you've ever lived in a city where there's you know, subways and stuff, okay, the subway gets you from here to there, or the bus gets you from here to there, or however fabulous the mass transit system is, it gets you from here to there. Now, how do you get from there to the shop or the restaurant or your friend's house or right, workplace? Right. It's that last little bit that's always a bit of a special kind of mission. Uh, that's an engineering problem. It's not a maths problem. It's not a physics problem. It's not a, mathematics can get you from 0 to 0 0.9 recurring. And then the difference between 0 0.9 recurring and 1, it'll just define it to be equal. You know, there's like, <laughs> that's no problem at all. We'll just dissolve that difference away. Uh, uh, engineering is not like that. Uh, there's a lot of niggles, and I and I hope the Iranians are not getting any help with those niggles. But I think that it's it's sort of nice to it's nice to think that the world's most powerful country is uh, has got a leader that at the moment is. Um, trying to cover up, trying to trying to smooth over troubled waters in a way that um, mm. can have good effect. And I think, yeah, I mean, to, to go back a couple of episodes when we were sort of doing um, Professor Sandal's breakdown from Harvard of like, uh, we're talking about why it's difficult to talk about things. Uh, and it's like, well, maybe there's three moral concerns every time you do something. There's a sort of utilitarian concern like is is going to kiss up to Mohammed bin Salman uh, consequentially good I think it is consequentially good is it deontically good like is there a rights-based argument that it's good is 
what about what about Khashoggi? What about this assassination attempt? Well, I take the view that um, even in an autocracy, if someone is assassinated, uh, it's just no good assuming that the order came from the top, and that short of some kind of evidence. Uh, beyond the motivation and the theoretical capacity for that to be made so uh it's it, it's it's not a good conclusion from a precisely from a rights-based argument so i think on a rights-based argument uh blaming mbs directly uh for Hasagi's assassination was wrong uh and so trying to make up for that is right uh and from uh an esteem signaling perspective insofar as uh that kind of thing matters and and probably that's what matters the most that is what grounds the other two judgments in a way for for the americans to signal to the saudis and to signal to the middle east in general that the threat of iran is taken seriously and that uh diplomatic uh energy will be expended in order to make the moves necessary to secure an alliance against this potentially apocalyptic regime um, of a beautiful country with great culture and great heritage. I mean, the most like the most cultured, lettered, cinematographically sophisticated, poetically prolific, you know, it's, it's like one a, of the reasons that, that, what a that nightmare. A, oh, my word. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of what Iranian oh. supremacy, race supremacism is based off of. Actually, it's this idea that uh, hard facts sort of, of like cultured, yeah, yeah, nothing to do with race, but right. like just right. mm, the, the 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 memes and the and the institutions there have been long-standing and awesome. Yeah, what a sad and thing that they they, they have oh. a very strong literary culture. Um, you know, a lot of the Islamic world's best, like sort of poetry and science books and stuff, uh, they're initially written in Arabic, but the but Persians is really. Like the, yeah, yeah, really do come to dominate the sort of literature world of 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 all the Islamic. Um, uh, countries. In fact, the Arabs have have fallen behind in a lot of those things, whereas a lot of the best Islamic literature was coming from places outside of the Arab world. It was coming from Mughal India. It was coming from Persia. It was coming from you know uh, Turkey, not not from not from the Arab world. And I think that has sort of in sort of esteemed terms has been a bit of a sore point for a very long time uh, between yeah. all of those factions, which is also why the Saudis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with their silly university students who got too excited about things, went and started Al Qaeda um, because they're sort of, they're on they're on the top of the bottom of the middle of the heap. It's like you know, it's a perfect like yes. space where you get so obsessed with the steam and who's cooler than who based on what that you end up flying airplanes into buildings. Um, yes. No. Oh. Uh, okay, we're pretty long now. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go to recommendations? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I have um, a recommendation, which is a little bit out of left field, but it is a YouTube channel called... So if you are a fan of The Lord of the Rings, and I mean, when I say a fan, I mean you've read The Silmarillion, you care about... Deep, deep, yeah, deep, deep. The, <laughs> the like absolute sort of if weird... You can, if you can of, read of actual text in Elvish... Yes, yes, that kind of thing. This guy's channel is very small. is great for that. It's called Tolkien Law. I'll put the link in the show notes. And it's good old-fashioned YouTube content of a guy with a beard, a very nerdy guy with a beard, standing in front of his camera 
and waffling into it about fantasy rules and elves and stuff. He does actually, interestingly, sometimes touch on the sort of larger culture war because every now and again, there's an attempt by someone to sally forth into the world of Lord of the Rings and capture it for uh, the culture wars. Um, oh, dude, I just got a WhatsApp from someone saying, oh, Tolkien, after he wrote a bestseller uh, with no female leads, and yes, it's like yes, some dude yes. in a muscly, and I'm like, oh, go leave me alone. Yes, yes. So he's also pushes back against that stuff from a very sort of non-political standpoint in that he really looks into Tolkien's work and says, like, here's why these sort of arguments that you know, ah, is like yes, bad yes. about women or that orcs are, oh, this is the most infuriating one. There was some people who tried to claim that the Lord orcs of the Rings was... People. No, no, no. Orcs are black people. And this no, is no, why orcs are white people. Orcs are clearly white people. <laughs> so, so oh, the, sorry, sorry, the, sorry. I was thinking from the contemporary racial stupid madness. <laughs> you're, you're talking about 1950s racial yes, stupid Yes, yes, yes. So the, 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 the argument, dead, eh? there's also a more abstract argument, which is the idea that there are different races in, in, in Lord of the Rings, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, encourages real-world racism. Which I think is a bit of a stretch, dude. I love that. Uh, I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have thought about how. Uh, my can I just say my take on that? Um, reading Lord of the Rings as a kid, I suppose in a way, looking back, always unusually interested in race, maybe because of uh, South Africa, um, and and feeling so comfortable about like, hey, dude, we look different, but we're the same, uh, and 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 grown up saying that, but clearly not being that comfortable. You know, clearly, sort of having these hang-ups, um, uh, not clearly, but that exhibiting itself through time. My my thought was, the I actually thought it more clearly about Narnia, um, but 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 it transposed onto Lord of the Rings as well, that there is something about fantasy stories uh, working with these different races and them having these different essential characteristics that is so effective as a training in non-racialism precisely because the bridge between where you are and where that world is, is a fictional bridge. Uh, and when you enter the story, that's one of the sort of as ifs that you take on. You're like, ah, in this world, you can right. tell what kind of a character something has by what race it belongs to. And then when we leave this world, we let go of that in the same way, by the way, that psychologists have shown, and I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, as children, we intuited it, that, like, when you see that people can fly in, like, superhero movies, it's and it's quite good for teaching <laughs> you that, in a sense, you can't fly. Uh, yes. That you have to... <laughs> <laughs> so... Because it's a different world. You, like, sympathize with it, and then you let it go, and you're like, oh, I kind of wish I could fly, but wow, the world is so different to the one that I can see represented, because it's been vividly, the contrast is vivid. It vivifies the contrast. <laughs> here's, here's one of the incredible, oh, excuse me. Ugh. Sorry. Here's one of I'm the incredible sorry. extra details, yeah. though. <laughs> Tolkien, so, so part of this argument is based on the fact that orcs are irredeemably bad, and therefore this encourages racism. Tolkien struggled his whole life with the idea that orcs are irredeemably bad. He originally wrote the story, clearly not having thought too much about this question, but Tolkien was very Catholic, and the Lord of the Rings is, its inner workings of its world are very strongly influenced by Catholicism. And that's actually an interesting place that sort of non-racialism kind of comes into the Lord of the Rings because of this idea that everyone has a soul. 
Tolkien very firmly believed that evil cannot create, right? That only God, which is goodness, can create. And therefore, the idea that orcs could be irredeemably evil didn't fit with his conception of the Lord of the Rings world because you couldn't create an evil that went on and on through the generations. You could maybe they corrupt be a, able to... a thing, right? And he never fully resolved this question, but he wrote extensively about it and things before he died. It's in his various bits of his letters and his writings, and he tried to rework the orcs specifically so that he could try and make the case that actually they weren't intrinsically evil. They had just fallen basically in, under the clutches of evil influence, but they were still fundamentally redeemable in some sort of way. You see bits of that in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings when you know, uh, Aragorn, after the Lord of the Rings, grants Mordor to, like, the orcs and trolls as their own land to live in in peace, uh, uh, you know, and, and do their own thing. So it's, it's just funny because even even on that level, like, Tolkien was like, nah, like, nothing is truly evil. <laughs> it's just... Dude, the dialogue, I mean, I think you can feel it in some of the dialogue. The dialogue right. when Frodo is in... Um, after he's sort of been trapped by the spider, in yeah, yeah, when he's when he's been taken to Kirith Ungol on the pass, yeah, and he and but then he but then he gets sort of taken up by I don't think they're orcs, I think they're goblins or maybe they're like orcs. Well, they 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 they, they are orcs, but they're different sort of clans. And then Sam is yes. following them, wearing the ring, and he hears yes. their conversations. Yes, yeah, and you hear those that, conversations, dude, exactly. and they sound like Cockney. They're like Cockney soldiers. With yes. like a bit of the the humor of the gallows, they're like gruff and they're nasty and they're like it's all men and there's like a little bit of women. It's like there's definitely there's a humanity in them. Still. The fact that they are funny, yes, and the fact that they are so petty and that they're sort of ah, uh, oh, dude, it's so human. You can feel. Right. I could. Feel, I remember feeling the redemption. I was like, oh wow, this is some of the scariest stuff. Precisely because these are not right. like the Nazgul or the the, but I mean, I love that it all starts with the only bit of law that I can ever really remember is that it kind of his his universe sort of starts out with a song. It's like someone plays C major, yes. and then someone else yeah. plays like a discordant like uh, D sus seven, <laughs> and yes. that's <laughs> so that's yeah that, that's Here comes that's the a, jazz. <laughs> so not to this is exactly the kind of thing the guy talks about in in in, in his videos is, is the world of Lord of the Rings is created by. Uh, Eru Iluvatar is basically they were the Lord of the Rings version of God. And he creates his archangels who are called the Valar. Yep. And the Valar, he he sets the tune. He's like the conductor. And the Valar sing are in a choir singing. And as they sing, the universe comes into creation. But the devil analog, who's a character called Morgoth, is oh, the God. most talented of all of them. And he tries to outsing everyone else. And by trying to outperform everyone else, he makes the whole rhythm discordant. And that's what creates like evil. His solo, he gets carried away with his solo. Dude, exactly. what a plastic, plastic. <laughs> mm, that is how That's how it all went wrong. We were all in the tribe. And by the way, like ancient Greek uh, theater sort of bears the story out insofar as you sort of go from Aeschylus to Sophocles to Euripides. You start out with just like a chorus then you sort of get a chorus and one soloist and chorus and two soloists and chorus and three soloists, and then you've got a full theater. And by the time you've got a full theater, like everyone's shining at everyone and no one's good and no one's bad and everyone's like a little bit mm. of both. <laughs> and it's a mess. So, so this Whereas is the just... chorus was sort of pure and simple and it just went, ah. Oh. <laughs> exactly. So this is but the barest surface of the complexity of Tolkien's work. 
and that's why this channel is just kind of interesting. Like, obviously, only if you're into the Lord of the Rings is it going to be fun for you. But I, you know, there are a lot of Lord of the Rings fans out there, so I think this recommendation will go down well. Good. Anyway, Good. Dude, I want to I want to check this out one because I have I've checked out some Lord of the Rings YouTube stuff as a yeah, this is like chill out and, and see someone wax lyrical about an interesting thing. So I'm keen. Um, my recommendation is I'm sort of tempted to say Boris Johnson's The Churchill Factor because uh, I think it's a well Oh, yes, I've read that, yeah. And I think that I just think as like a, as like a tribute, like we're after the thing, Johnson must go, whatever. Um, but really what I would like to recommend what I maybe we'll throw that in as a as a little third from both or something. But my recommendation for the week is, and I'll try and find a good uh, link to to attach to this, is uh, Philip Glass's uh, violin concerto. Um, it sort of has a. I feel like I've been going mad. Um, I lost a friend this week. Someone who said I never want to speak to you again. Uh. Uh, I've sort of lost friends to death. I've never sort of lost friends, just sort of like really, really, really close friends, like since I can remember who, uh, just sort of, uh, so I don't know that, that, that hurt my feelings. And, um, and I've been trying to work and trying to hang out and love life and all the, all the, all the good stuff, all the tough stuff. Like anyway, uh, sometimes I talk about pessimism and, um, and and sort of leaning into the difficult feelings and how important I think it is to do that. Um, and this is, yeah, I think this concerto is sort of it's good. It's good for that. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not like Mozart's um, flute concertos that are like butterflies landing on daffodils and yeah you see um, rainbows coming out of their buttocks it's like really i'm not a fan it's precisely for that reason i'm not a fan of, of quite a lot of both sorts of stuff some of the stuff i like but that that genre in particular i'm very much like uh, yeah <laughs> not that i'm any kind of aficionado of of um classical music but from my plebeian tastes that mozart is not great <laughs> so Look, I respect it because I think, um, yeah, I was thinking about it actually because because um, when we watched the Janus book, you know, we went to like uh, most of the winter season, and in the mm. first uh, concerts, they actually started out uh, after a little prelude by someone I forgot with Mozart, one of Mozart's flute concertos, and it really is so beautiful and it's you know, like bouncing around on clouds and stuff. And after, as I thought about it, I, I've got a, a um, a beautiful young friend who's dying and it's so hard to think of any kind of consolation anything to try and share or care about and and that just struck me as well you know there are i think you know it's like so hard to find poetry or like so few things are actually just trying to truly be purely good and somehow mm -hmm. redemptive and life-affirming so yes it's difficult when you hear it because it is so pure um but on the other hand, the thing that I'm recommending, it's not that. It's it's angsty <laughs> and it's it's troubled. But I think it has it has a beautiful beauty to it too. I think maybe a redemptive quality. I don't know. But it's like it's 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 it captures a, a mood that I've been feeling. 
All right. And with that, uh, all I can say is keep that flag of liberty flying, and we'll see you around. Grr, grr, grr.